0: If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Alison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast, Thank you so much for listening. Later on.
1: Hey, it's Cindy Howes and Lizzie Noh from the podcast Basic Folk, honest conversations with folk musicians.
2: Basic Folk is truly changing the game with our well-researched deep dives that aim to empower the listener while fostering the folk community. I basically am writing worship music for youth group rejects. Maternal regrets and maternal guilt
0: are universal. I try to make things that are beautiful and that are made with like
3: a purity of intention.
2: You can listen to Basic Folk on the Bluegrass Situation podcast network or at basicfolk.com.
3: Thompson Guitars makes handcrafted instruments in Oregon. Their guitars are built with select tone woods, including Brazilian rosewood. Go to pktguitars.com for more information about their different models and appointments available from their custom shop.
0: Hi, I'm Tom Power, and this is Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. Hi, welcome to the third episode of Toy Heart for the Season. Thanks for all the kindness on the internet about the show so far. If you missed our conversation with Sam Bush or with Larry Sparks, you can find them wherever you got this podcast. And if you're not already subscribed, that would be great if you could do that. Leave a review too, if you don't mind. Today you're going to hear from one of the great instrumentalists of bluegrass music. I first heard uh, Mike Compton as part of the house band from the Down from the Mountain concert at the Ryman in Nashville. It was a DVD I got, a live celebration of the music of the film Oh Brother Where Art Thou? I bought the DVD at Fred's Records in Newfoundland. I think it's on YouTube now. I don't know if it's legally on YouTube now, but it's definitely on YouTube now. You can see it. I watched it with my dad, and there was this guy in overalls and, and long hair and a mandolin and... He kind of played with everybody. It didn't matter the band he was up with them, and he had such a powerful way of playing the music. And I didn't quite understand what it was about the music that I loved, but I knew I loved it. It was only when I got older and frankly got nerdier that I learned who this guy was. That Mike Compton is one of the finest mandolin players in the history of the instrument. His playing hews really closely to the way Bill Monroe played the mandolin, and, and we talk a little bit about that. In the 80s, Mike helped start one of the greatest bands in the music, the Nashville Bluegrass Band. He played alongside the legendary John Hartford in his string band. He has some good John Hartford stories today. And he's kind of played with everybody in the music, with Sam Bush and Alison Krauss and Norman Blake and Elvis Costello and Sting and Doc Watson. You don't often hear Sting and Doc Watson in the same sentence. I'm a big fan of his duets records, too, with David Long and another with David Greer. They're both on Spotify But overall, this is someone, and maybe this is a theme of this season of Toy Heart, I'm starting to figure out, who approaches the music with heart instead of flash. We taped this conversation over Zoom in the summer of 2022, when Zoom was kind of the way to do it. Here's my conversation with Mike Compton. Um, So I thought we could start at the beginning. So Meridian, uh, Mississippi. Meridian? Yep. Yep.
2: The home of Jimmy
3: Rogers.
0: The home of Jimmy Rogers. Did you know that was the home of Jimmy Rogers growing up? Did that mean
2: anything to you when you were a kid? I don't think it meant anything to anybody. Uh, (laughs) 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 There was I found a monument to him out on the frontage road by one of the interstates that goes through Meridian. We went out to it because it was just something unusual. When I was uh, late teens, just started getting interested in playing music and and all this stuff and, and my relatives and what had been going on around Meridian. This would have been late 60s, 1970, 72, around in there. His monument by the interstate must have been you know it was put up before the interstate was built but it must have been a a reasonably nice little place but it was all grown up in weeds at that point i always heard about him you know all the old time guys that i hung around with which were mostly all the people i hung out with when i was a kid were men my age now yeah mid-60s 70s they talked about him with great reverence but nobody else knew about him and i and i heard at, at one point really that not many people around meridian were very fond of him because he he had gotten a bad name by uh, befriending bootleggers and then turning them into the cops <laughs> <laughs> so they were all pissed <laughs> That's a good way to lose some friends though. You know what I mean? That's a good way to, yeah, Yeah, I get it. So your, your relatives, like you had
0: some great grandparents who were fiddlers and played music. Is that right? I
2: I had a great grandfather that uh, my, my daddy's mother's family, uh, he was a fiddle player and turns out within the last two or three years, I have a distant relative named Tammy that lives in Texas uh, that knows all of those. Those are all galleons. Uh, not the Italian version of the galleons, but the Irish. All of the people in in that branch of the family played something. And and Tammy works for the state of Texas as a historian. And uh, she sent me a whole package of information, like copies of photographs that go back to the Civil War and all kind of like newspaper clippings and everything else turns out. There were a lot of pickers and singers in that bunch. Yeah. So that, I started tracking that down. I mean, but that was that was the branch of the family. The Comptons are all pretty much, most of them, tone deaf. And <laughs> and uh, my mother's side of the family, the Weekses, they play some, Muffets. But there wasn't any
0: picking growing up. There wasn't any in the living room playing tunes or anything like that, no.
2: No, I, I started playing because of the men that I, I was working around and in, in the summertime they were all string band musicians and um, you know hauling hay and picking peas and all that kind of stuff they all played mandolins and fiddles and guitars and they were real fond of uh and smith and arthur smith and the elite county revelers jimmy rogers and and all of that stuff <laughs>
0: So were you playing guitar, you were playing rock and roll, were you playing the Beatles, like, were you doing that kind of thing?
2: My cousin and I, well, one of the Muffets. one of the ones that we we sort of, we fell in love with uh, like Credence Clearwater and Cat Stevens and all those guys back when they first came out. And uh, I, I think the first time I saw anybody playing a mandolin was on the Midnight Special on television. It was Seals and Crofts. Uh, yeah, Summer Breeze, he plays mandolin yeah. on that, yeah. That's cool. yeah. Although, oh wow, that's cool, you know. And then the soundtrack, the Deliverance was out. I don't know how I came across that, but I ended up with a copy of it at some point and listened to that because it was it was different than all the Gordon Lightfoot and the B.J. Thomas I was and uh, Smokey Robinson I was hearing on the radio.
0: <laughs> so, so when when did, like is there a flashbulb moment? Is there a moment you hear Bill Monroe? Is there a moment? Can, can you pinpoint like I heard Bill Monroe one day on this and then everything kind of changes?
2: Uh, whenever I first heard Bill, I, I had grown up listening to, uh, my parents' record collection, which was as wide and varied as you could imagine. Uh, Herb Alpert, Tijuana Brass, Mitch Miller, uh, Strauss, uh, Ray Charles, Ella Fitzgerald, Hank Williams, uh, Henry Mancini, all of those things, you know, I used to lay on the floor with my head under the Magnifox stereo because that's where the speaker was, and it just blasted me in the face. That's what I was listening to. Whenever I first heard Bill, he sounded out of tune to me uh, because he sang some things a little bit flat and it didn't sound, you know, like living room smooth kind of stuff, you know? So I kind of had an aversion to it at first. And then I started hanging around these old guys that played hillbilly music and start developing a taste for it. And that's that's kind of whenever I started pursuing it.
0: That's not uncommon. Hey, I mean, that, that, that happened to me. I remember when I first started getting into this music, it was, well, it was through a brother actually, which we can talk about later. And then like, you know, li- and then I would, I would sort of, I was sort of listening to a lot of different stuff. I was listening to a lot of really polished stuff. And so like, Bill Monroe was like, you know, he's a very big deal to me. And I got the shirt and I'm a really, I, 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 I got, it. I, if it wasn't you, if it wasn't you, I would be nerding out a lot more. about Bill Monroe. But, um, and Neil, Neil Rosenberg, who's like my kind of mentor and has helped me with everything along the way. Yeah. He, he's talked to me a lot about working for Birch and, and, and working for Bill and all that stuff. oh my bless his heart <laughs> yeah you're right <laughs> and he um but Ooh. I I remember first hearing Bill Monroe and going I don't like this like this isn't smooth this isn't cool I don't I don't even know if he's that good at the mandolin you know what yeah
2: I mean? I, and Tim O'Brien told me he felt the same way you know it was just it, it was sounded flat and and I couldn't make I couldn't make sense out of it based on, I didn't have a point of reference to listen to it because, like I said, everything else that I had been listening to was, was really, was overproduced and really smooth and really in tune. And and uh, here came Bill just being real real primal sounding and in my face, and it made me uncomfortable. did you dig it eventually did you yeah i did i, I started getting a, a taste for it and and started you know that thing that that makes the hair up on the, on the back of your neck whenever you hear some of those things i kind of started getting really a craving for that for that feeling because it was it was starting to turn me on a bit and i went and started buying records i started listening to um uh, Delta Blues Furry Lewis and sunhouse
3: you
2: Robert Johnson I got a that project girl, that came out that turned everybody on came out about that time too I, I was in uh, like like midways through high school, all of that started hitting at the same time, and I got into it and just made a left at Albuquerque, and with as as Bugs Bunny says, and that's what I did from yeah. then on.
0: but you were looking for the you were looking for the heart, you know, like you I can tell even just then you weren't. That doesn't strike me as someone attracted to the
2: flash or the chops. Like no, you no, were looking I, for the heart of this music. It was it was compelling because it kind of grabbed a hold my of me and and it. I got addicted to unapologetic sound, pretty much. I got addicted to unapologetic sound.
0: That's something else, man. What does that mean? What is, what, what, talk to me about more
2: about that. It means that I could hear the confidence level in it, and it was raw, and it was, well, it was unapologetic. It's like, here it is. It, it, it felt honest, and it felt pure, uh, even if it had goobers you know it was it was like trying to listen to an old 78 record with all the noise on it after a while you don't hear the noise what you hear is is the story that's being told
0: so you weren't listening to to, to Homer and jethro or anything like that and that kind of mandolin playing or getting into anything like that
2: no I, I, no but i hadn't heard of them yeah i mean they're they're brilliant players but it's not it's not something that I've identify with so much i think really the the main part of Monroe's playing that—that gets me. Besides his attitude, was the blues aspect of it. Yeah, and that's—that's that's what I don't really hear that in a lot of other country band sounds, unless it's you know it's like the black string band tradition. Those there's a there's a really strong likeness between like Charlie McCoy and and Bill Monroe and Monroe was surrounded by black mandolin players and and fiddlers and 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 he was you know one of his greatest examples and teachers charles uh, arnold schultz
1: yeah
2: you know i didn't i didn't know anything about him when i first heard it but i you know after i got studying on it i re- realized where they were living all everybody was playing the same music uh, un, until the record companies came through and and decided to cash in on on all of that
0: yeah, that the the famous story around Bristol, where just you know, one day there's black music, you know, up and you all, know, of, all like, of a sudden, yeah, <laughs> one, one day there's black music and, and, and white music. One day there's R and B and country music, like yeah. literally earlier that day, everyone was playing the exact same <laughs> exact same music. So when you you went to you went to college for for art,
2: yeah, I, I went on an art scholarship. Uh, I entered a little little contest. There was a couple of students that, that came around to the high school I was going to and, and were teaching everybody how to draw. And so I entered and they and they gave me some money to go to school. Painting? Uh, a lot of it was freehand drawing. It, it, it was uh, included um, at the time I didn't know it. I, I thought it would just be me sitting there drawing stuff because I, I did that the whole time I was in, from the time I was in elementary school, I took painting classes and noodled and, been scribbled on stuff basically drawing a pile of junk in the middle of the room in a freehand drawing class it it included uh pottery it included uh architectural drawing which i developed to find this far and uh, all of those kinds of things it was all included together not much painting most of it was freehand drawing and and everything that they had on the curriculum that, that went with it including you know like english and and math and all that stuff
0: is that where you were headed were you thinking okay i might i might get into art or i might get into architecture or that kind of thing
2: i liked using uh pencils and and rulers and and french curves and all that kind of stuff it, it turns me on a lot i and i'm still that way i like all the curves to be have curves not straight lines in them and everything you know everything to be lined up i'm i'm sort of i guess at the core of what makes me who i am is is sound and shapes and colors. That's, that's pretty much if, if I was going to have to describe myself in three words, that's what it would be. So are you
0: having that moment in college that a lot of people have where there's just, a, you're, you're supposed to be doing classes, but there's some, there's some music happening. There's some jamming happening. There is some bluegrass in
2: the, in the works. Cause it's like 75, you go to Bean blossom, right? 74. I believe, I believe 74. Yeah. I graduated in 74. That was, it was the year I graduated high school. But i had i had gone to some festivals in georgia earlier on than that well i guess the first time i ever talked to monroe was was in uh livonia georgia i believe
0: tell me about that what happened there
2: <laughs> there was a kooky guy that uh was the o- the only adult i knew that would uh get in a van with me and, and go to a festival uh, <laughs> at that point in time he had a volkswagen van and he he volunteered to drive us down to Livonia. And, and so he he took me and him down to this festival. And uh, being a guy that talked to a lot of different kinds of people, he wasn't very shy about anything. And and we were walking across the grounds one night down there. And you so he, he saw Monroe walking across the grounds after getting done with the last show, carrying his mandolin case. And he, he ran out and says, Bill, Bill. I'd like for you to meet my friend Mike he really enjoys your music and and so so bill just stopped standing right there in the dark and uh was like well what now you know and <laughs> and I'm just standing there looking at him and and uh, there was a there was a street light right behind him so basically all I could see was a black silhouette of him I couldn't see any facial features or nothing it was just like cut out of bill monroe standing there not saying a damn thing and it's uh, my the guy i came with says do you have anything you want to ask him mr monroe and uh and i said uh well how do you tune your mandolin to play get up john because i had just kind of discovered that and he and he rattled off something i have no idea what he said I but when he stopped talking i said okay uh Thank you. And I turned around, walked off, you know, Moved. but yeah. He's like, Oh God. <laughs> I was, I was terribly, terribly shy as it was anyway. And uh, you know, he, he really put me on the spot and, yeah. and I didn't know what to say. Cause I, that's only, that's the first thing that popped in my head. And so that's what I said. So
0: when you, when you go to Bean Blossom, then after that, with things with Butch, right. With Butch Robbins and Julia LaBelle, is that right? julia labella yeah. yeah yeah but were they both playing with monroe at the time
2: the nah, uh julia was was bill's girlfriend yeah and uh didn't she, she play some guitar or something like that did she, she played some, some yeah, yeah she had a had a real nice little little martin uh thing like singular 0017 or something that he had bought her uh she she played some with him yeah um, i I went I played uh, Bean Blossom a couple of times with do you remember a guy named Pete Corum? no was a bass bass player played with flat some I think okay went up with him and Charlie Cushman and Pat Enright and myself, and we played some some shows that Pete had booked. I think that was the first time I did that, but I played up down actually at the Livonia Festival with Hubert davis a few years ago i i moved, moved to Nashville. I was in the middle of going to school and i went up to nashville with a fellow that lived there in meridian there's a a upholstery guy named raymond huffmaster and he was he had the only bluegrass band in town and we drove up to bean blossom in 74 and did all of that festival i think i got strep throat that year and and didn't have a lot of fun (laughs) but that was the first year I went, and we stopped in Nashville on the way through. I believe the next year he went. He went up to pick up a Randy Wood mandolin that he had bought, and um, we stopped to see Hubert, and I was introduced to them. That, that's great music. I listened to that record uh, yesterday. I listened to that one of the one of those records you guys made together
0: with Hubert. I listened to the uh, Harvest record. Yeah, lovely stuff. And and you're a kid on that, I know. And I was listening yep. to your your break on um,
2: Jesse James or something. Yeah, Jesse James,
0: Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. You play a real, real lovely break on that.
2: Oh, Hubert learned to play banjo from Earl Scruggs while Earl was learning how to play. So, I mean, he got it it straight from the horse's mouth.
0: They were they were from around the same place.
2: Yeah, Earl was a little bit older than Hubert. Hubert was just was, I don't I don't know how many years younger, but he was basically was the little kid that was following Earl around. And he was he had a he had a, a venue right in Nashville. He had a yeah, we played two or three different places there. But well, I, I was introduced to Hubert there, and I went went to some other place and played I don't remember where, but it was Pat Enright and a couple of other people were playing in there, and Monroe came in the venue that night when we were playing and sat out there and, and didn't didn't say anything. He just kind of sat there and, and I was just mortified that he was in the room. I came back to town and not too long after that, I, Pat got in touch and said that they were starting a band when I want to move to Nashville and be part of a new bluegrass band. And I just, you know, I just thought, oh my Lord, uh what am I gonna do about this? Yeah, because he th- that was the bluegrass band before the Nashville bluegrass band. No, it was before it was before that. Okay. It wasn't the one with Butch, it was the one before that. Yeah. It was a band that never materialized, basically. It was about 1976. What or se- or seven? I moved here in 77. <laughs> Didn't
0: Hubert die when you were in the did he pass on while you were playing with him?
2: No, uh, afterwards. Several years after I I dropped out. Oh, okay. I hadn't lived there very long. I, I moved in, I moved to Nashville and, and lived with J.T. Gray, the guy that used to own, the, used to run the station in for months. And then I played with Hubert a little bit. And then one night Hubert said the newest member, if he wants to be. And then introduced me that way, you know, didn't ask me or anything. It just like put me on the spot, standing on stage. And so I I moved in with Hubert and his family and started doing that. And I did it until. Sometime in eighty one,
0: are you feeling at that moment like there's not to be a bit too woo woo with you here, but like are you feeling like a sense of purpose, like when you're playing in like a bluegrass band that's gigging, is something just feeling right? Because it's quite a decision that a young person makes that they're going to play this kind of music and they're going to do it professionally. Just, is, are you feeling some kind of purpose there?
2: Oh uh, well, I, I don't know. I stopped going to school and just would put the mandolin in the car. I had decided in my mind that that's what I was going to do. And I, I used to just go down, drive off down to the dirt pit, and, and play the mandolin all day, and not go to school. Uh, when I moved to town, uh, I, I, I didn't. I didn't have any goals. No. And I, I dreamed to be able being able to play better. But you know, it was hang on for dear life the whole time I was working with Hubert until I got to where I felt like I could play a little bit, and then Pat right. Alan O'Brien we started talking about maybe wanting to form a band and uh that's when I played some with um David Greer starting around in that in that time and and played in a band with uh several folks around town that that I knew just doing odd job kind of stuff and that's when the bluegrass band thing started happening and it was uh, Butch and Die and Pat and Allen and um uh David Sebring I don't know if you ever heard of him or not this guy from Erie Pennsylvania we we basically did the last few gigs that the bluegrass band had on the books and uh about five or six I guess and then it was sort of like a proving ground Pat and Allen had decided that it went well enough and they just said well let's just start another band
0: how quickly after that do you do that grand old country touring show that was about 84, 80, I think, 85. So this is the Nashville Bluegrass Band. Because that feels like a, a formative moment for the band, right? It feels like the Beatles in Hamburg to me. Like it just feels like you guys are, <laughs> you know, it feels like you're going out on the road, just touring and playing a lot. You know, Minnie Pearl was on that, right?
2: Yeah, there, and everybody else was from New York City. There was a swing band and well, except for Steve Young. Steve Young was on there. He's from Alabama. What do you remember from that tour? I remember that everybody had two bus seats each, and uh, that's where you slept and where you sat. And uh, it, basically, it was a proven ground for the new band. We were out three months, and we went out and did that whole thing, and we sort of had an identity when we came back. We all thought about, was Pat and Alan, myself, and Mark Hembry. We told Mark that w- there was going to be a new band, and did he want to join, and he quit Monroe on Father's Day. <laughs> <laughs> to join this band so that's what we did and it worked out good and so we decided you know all right this is working let's just keep doing it we need to find a find a fiddle player when you say you came back with an identity what do you mean by that uh we the sound had started to gel and we had material and we felt like it was uh we had a legitimate course of action that was uh, sort of leading, leading the troop as it were,
0: <laughs> and, and it felt different than a lot of other stuff that was happening at the time. I mean, the, the black uh, gospel songs, the the harmonies. I mean, that first that first record, especially, like it did feel different than when I listened to that first National Bluegrass Band record, which I, I listened to them a bunch of the stuff to get ready for this today. Yeah, it just sounds so clearly defined to me. Oh, ye
3: prodigal son.
2: we didn't have to figure out what we wanted it to sound like which was i think and it's in and of itself the largest hurdle we didn't have to jump mainly we just had to start coming up with material because you know alan comes from a a background of being around the monroes you know he worked for james he he filled in in monroe's band bill's band some and uh, pat you know he's he was the guy that's 10 years older than all of the rest of us and and uh really the, one of the the main arrangers of of the music and and finding things that we could we could work on he you know pat comes from like the 1950s r&b and doo-wop uh you know back when fm radio had everything from uh bill monroe to frank sinatra on it and uh you know he was a wealth of information and influence there, but I mean, he he liked Vern Williams from out in California, and and you know, really really raw music, which suited all of us just fine. Mark Henry had just come off of a stint working for Bill, and we we used Bl- blaine Sprouse a bit, which is you know straight out of the Baker and Basser book. And when we met Stuart Duck, and he was looking for some place to land, and boom. So you got people from as far east and west as you could go in the United States and as far north and south almost as you could go and a guy right in the middle. So it, it just like it covered the entire United States as far as like where we were from. But we all thought about the sound that we wanted in the same way. So we all we did was started working up material.
0: What did you bring? Like if if Alan kind of brought that you know working for the Monroes and Pat had played with the Dreadful Snakes before that, you know, and he had he had toured for a long time. And you know, and Stuart had already made those Allison records with Allison Brown mm-hmm. and play. Like, um so, and that was some of that stuff's way out there. Um yeah. what did you bring to the Nashville Bluegrass band, you think? I know it's a hard one.
2: At this point in time, I, I would probably have to say that it, it was a fondness for the blues. Yeah. And the Monroe element, southern beat. Yeah. If I if I'm at home, if I'm da- hanging out with people in Meridian, then you know that where the where the downbeat is is a little bit different. But I um, is not that far north. Uh, it's 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 a it's it's kin folks.
0: Tell me tell me more about that where the downbeat is.
2: Oh, it's it's just a it's a, it's like an accent. You and I both speak English, but we sound different. Yeah. It's just it's just a different accent on, on where the beat's placed. Uh, whenever, whenever Bill was playing with Charlie, they were they kind of the way they dealt with the beat was was to me it was a little bit on the front edge of it. Bill, like liked to say that he said Charlie run off and leave you if you don't watch him, because <laughs> he said he just played on the front of the beat so much. Bill had to teach himself how to play the chop that he played with. He didn't use it until really that I could I could tell him until after he left Charlie and. Uh, I think it was a western swing influence everybody was sort of doing that at that point in time and bluegrass is more of a a, an offbeat music to me yeah and you know so Bill's was sort of like in the middle but you know if you listen to all of his material I mean this is all the way I I could describe what I'm trying to tell you if you listen to Bill's material, you know that he's he's ever present on the offbeat, but the offbeat is not always right exactly in the same place. Right, and it. But Robin says it's it's almost as if he had a specific rhythm for every song that he played. So it's it moves around just a little, or it's it's the way you, you attack it. It's just it's a lot easier to get into it and melt back into it. The feel of it when I'm with people that I grew up with. Yeah, than it is for me to tell you how to do it.
0: No, I understand, and I, and I can kind of hear it in the Nashville Bluegrass Band stuff a little bit. It is on the back end of that beat a little bit more. It's a little bit more sat back,
2: you know. We didn't have to figure out where that was. That was, like I said, we all sort of felt it there, yeah. And and so we just started working up material and and using the our collective understanding of what we wanted to do.
0: It's funny, you know, when I listen to I mean I know I'm going to sound like an old man yelling at clouds right now, but like when I when I when <laughs> I hear ahead. when I hear a lot of new bluegrass, like when I listen to the Sirius channel or something like that. It's funny. I feel like it's all downbeat now. Like I don't I feel like there's it's it's like gong 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 and very little and cha cha cha. You know what I mean? It's,
2: yeah, it's it's a different pocket and I the only thing that I can attribute it to is the earlier music came with a lot of influence from fiddle bands and you know in the 50s elvis came around and uh Monroe was against him playing one of his songs until he he started getting a lot of money in the mail and then he decided it was okay because <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't making diddly at that point in time hubert told me that he went to one of bill's shows in the 50s with his brother Wee. And there were about nine people there and half of them got up and left before Bill got finished and stopped halfway back through the auditorium and waved at Bill and says, bye, Bill, and just went out the door. You know, so Bill was on hard times until Elvis did Blue Moon. And then, you know, then it was cool. It was okay, You know, but after that, I think a lot of the music after the especially after the uh, the folk revival or scare, as they call it around here, after that a lot of people were playing music that was being pl- heard being played on electric guitars yeah and I, th- I think to me that's sort of a turning point i don't you know i'm no i'm no academic about it all and but that's just that's just my opinion it's it's sort of what what i hear and it, it seems like it's more music that could be played on electric guitars that that it it's not so much of a fiddle focus.
0: Yeah. I mean that's what I mean that that's always what I loved about the National Bluegrass band and, and your playing and even to sort a lot of the people we're talking to in this season is that like those years where and Jody Stecker calls it like the years where old time music and bluegrass music were kind of the same thing. They were kind of mm-hmm. overlapping with one another. That was like coming from a fiddle tradition like I did, like that's the that's the stuff that got me into this music, you know, that's the
2: stuff that really kind of caught me. Beside it being a a generational thing, I I mean, you know, obviously the the music is is going to be in the culture one way or the other, and and we're all learning from each other. The people around the time when when Monroe was first getting into it, you know, it was sketchy. You could, you don't hear near as much stuff around as you do now. I mean, we're sitting here talking to each other on the internet. I could leave this interview and and go find almost anything that I want to find anywhere in the world. They didn't have that. I I think, I think the mass. Just the volume of, of things that are available to listen to is a wonderful thing. And it's a marvel. And, I, you know, I have reaped many benefits from being able to listen to all kinds of stuff and found a lot of things that I, I really enjoy, but it dilutes the sound. It brings new things to it and it dilutes what came before it. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it does change the accent. I was thinking back to Monroe and Elvis. He gets the B-side of Elvis's single. Like, he gets Blue Moon to Kentucky. Monroe was a rockabilly guy before Chuck Berry came along. I met Chuck one time when I was working with Hartford, and Hartford was walking around backstage at this thing that they had, mainly for Missouri uh, artists. And we were all following him around. He was just walking around playing the fiddle and showing off in front of everybody. And we walked by, and it was Chuck Berry and one of the guys in his band. And I went... Holy crap, look who this is. And he, and, and John went and stopped and, and just did this whole thing in, in Chuck's face, you know, and, uh, and he, he turned to the guy that was with him and he said, listen, man, they're playing bluegrass. So, you know, so Chuck was if he knew what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> and as, as soon as he recognized it, John turned around and walked off and, and we went and did something else. Monroe was doing that before a lot of those guys.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, you hear that a lot. That, that let's I want to go back to the National Bluegrass Band for a second. And because I, I wanted to hear this story, I have a couple of stories about, about that band I've heard over the years that I wanted to ask you about. One is, can you tell me the story cuz the band starts blowing up pretty early. You guys start doing really well. And then you guys become big in China. C- can you tell me that story that like you guys went over there and you had a hard time getting in or something like that, but then you became like the Beatles of bluegrass in China or something like that? <laughs>
2: Well, I don't know. That's kind of (laughs) far-fetched when we got to the country, uh, they wouldn't let us through customs because apparently our visas weren't filled out the right way or something. And, uh, we came through and got met by a group of Chinese guys in plain clothes. And I had a, a guy came up and started talking to me. And, uh, I noticed after about five minutes that everybody in the band had been quietly herded off away from each other. So we were, I I started looking around and there was no way I would have been able to make contact with any of the rest of them because they, they had separated us without us realizing it. And I was talking to a guy about different things and I, and I I looked and there's, there's, you know, Mark over there, about 30 feet away, talking to another guy. Pat was over there and Alan was back here. You know, it's like, we were all separated. That, you know, I went, Uh oh, (laughs) this doesn't look good. And uh, somehow or another, they they said, all right, well, you claim to be singers, sing something for us. And uh, fortunately, we had just worked up a few of those black gospel songs and we walked over and Alan kicked off Blind Barnabas and we started singing uh, five parts. Oh, well, Lord,
3: blind Bartimus stood
1: on the way, blind. Blind Bartimus stood on the way. Well, Lord, blind Bartimus stood Stood on the way, crying. Oh, Lord, Lord, have have mercy on me. Well, Lord, blind Bartimus stood
2: on the way. And then they started staffing the visas, and then we went went right on in. But, I mean, they had separated us and had us right where they wanted us until we we proved that what we were saying was That's true. Crazy. And then and then they let us in.
0: And then when you get in, you start doing really well like the band, the people are into it, right? Like
2: yeah, we ended up meeting a bunch of guys that was working in the hotel uh that that had a band uh room that was designated for them to do what they wanted to do down about five floors below the ground in a parking garage and we got to hanging out with them. We got got to play for the China Daily, which is a newspaper there and uh played for a bunch of kids and had a humongous multi-course dinner and we played a lot in a uh, big hotel there in town like foreign dignitaries and people hanging out but it was cool i was like we went to the forbidden city and before it was really cool (laughs) to do so and uh it was a pretty uh psychedelic kind of a trip
0: Man, oh man! Like it really feels like everything's kind of happening. It must have been so exciting to be in the band
2: at this stage. It, well, it it all it just took off like a rocket, and uh, I, I get really no fault of our own. We we just we started a band and and uh, we had to scrounge around for quite a while trying to find somebody that would book us, and uh, that wasn't doing all that good. And and uh, whenever it started, I guess it it just kind of took off. And then the agency people were, you know, coming around and said, "Hey, we'd like to be your exclusive."
0: If you guys are sort of here, right? Then mm-hmm. there's like the really traditional kind of dressed up in costume with Johnson Mountain Boys, and then there's like the Newgrass revival guys. Like, what was your relationship with those two bands, with those two sides of the music, with the band?
2: It was all good. Yeah, yeah, because we all we knew all of those guys. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was fine. We were we just decided that that we. Didn't need to, to do that traditional everybody dress alike thing. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, have you understood the reason for it? Yeah. Because it, it, you know, it tells everybody that you're a unit, but we all felt like we had individual identities, uh, although that we were working in a company that had a product. This is us, but somebody's already doing that and somebody's already doing this. So, what? Well, let's show up nice, casual, or however you want to do it.
0: How soon after Merle Watson's passing did Doc get in touch with
2: you guys to do the Merle Watson
0: Festival and to do the gospel
2: set? NBB, up until Doc died, worked every one of them. That's right. From the beginning. Doc was really fond of Alan's tenor singing and and, and uh, knew Alan's voice and was a- acquainted with Alan before the band started, I think. I'm not really sure about that, but I, I do know that that we went and and uh did some parts on one of the docs records early on, but I mean n b b did every one of those festivals from the from the get go
0: yeah, I guess that would have been pretty quickly after Merle had died,
2: yeah, I
0: can't imagine that you know
2: up until the the year actually the the year that docs died that was the last year that we we played it. I think the reason we were there was because doc enjoyed doing that sunday gospel thing with us and uh you know so that so that was that was why we were there
0: i am really curious about what happened with the bus accident i've always been really curious about it i've only ever heard it from other people and as far as i understand it you guys were on your way to winter hawk which is now gray fox
2: Mm -hmm. we had stopped we were in virginia we had stopped to get something to eat and took off down the road in the bus, Mark was driving. It was his shift, and uh, it was raining a little bit on the road. We came over the hill, and uh, I think it was going pretty slow because you know it's an old bus, and it's, and it's really going up and down. We came up the crest of the top of the hill, and and uh, there was nothing but brake lights on both lanes, and because of that, that countryside around there, it's up and down and windy. And, and, you know, it looks like the road is built on a, on a, on almost like on a platform, the whole way through the thing. And there was no place to go on either side, uh, because the banks just dropped off and go down a hill It it was at the bottom of the hill. We tr- crashed at the top of the hill and all we could see down at the other end were, were cars stopping. And, and I just remember Mark said, Oh shit. And we all kind of set up and went like this and started like, like, Uh-oh. Oh, oh, ooh, ooh. And this is, this is going to be bad. And, uh, he, he basically just guided the bus into the back of a semi because that was the biggest thing there. And, and instead of he had the presence of mind to not plow into a bunch of cars, Wow! because that would have hurt a lot of people. He there was a there was a semi there, uh, and he he just turned the bus. He got in that lane and just ran us into the back of that semi. He slowed down as much as he could, but every, I could feel every time he he would mash on the brakes, they'd lock up and the bus would slide. So he so he just kind of did, you know. Mark being from uh, Milwaukee, he started doing it like you would if you were driving in snow. You just kind of patting the brakes, trying to get it slowed down. And, uh, I remember we're all sitting up there watching the back of that truck coming up on us and it, and it went, got darker darker and then black. And then it was like, blam, a huge, that, and everybody, everything in the bus came to the front.
0: Were you, were you okay?
2: Yeah, I was sitting up playing the mandolin and, uh, and it grabbed the mandolin <laughs> mandolin headstock on the windowsill and, and ripped, ripped the the headstock off of it. (laughs) Pat and Alan, Pat was in the back, taking a nap. So whenever, and, and Stuart and Alan were sitting on the other side on the couch, which went to the front too. Um, Mark got the worst of it because there's nothing in the front of the bus, but a a huge piece of glass for a windshield and there's nothing, you know, in, in between him and the back of the truck, but the steering wheel and the dashboard. So he got, he got the full frontal bit of it.
0: That must've been terrifying, man.
2: Uh, It all happened so quick. It, it felt like it was, it went in slow motion. It really did. I know people say that, but that's what it felt like. It felt like whenever we could see that there was no way we were going to be able to stop it. You know, time just kind of got real funny. Yeah. And it went blam and hit that bus. And once we all, kind of like felt around and, and made sure that we were all together. I, I went in the back and pushed the back door open. Everything all the clothes and instruments and everything were up against the door. So I when I got it open, I there was Pat with just his head and his arms sticking out of all the, all the clothes and stuff. He was going, Uh ah, uh ah, ah. You know, it's just like, what happened? and uh mark had like a lot of broken bones and cuts and uh his face hands arms legs ribs you know the whole thing and they they had to cut mark out of the bus he was uh he told me that i mean this is a personal thing for him i don't but i don't think he would mind it he had a sister that had had gone on and uh, he said that he was freaking out and his sister came to him while he was sitting there in the seat and said i know this is scary but it's going to be okay so just try to relax wow. and he calmed down he stopped screaming basically because he had been yelling the whole time up to that point and that's that's what he said he said my sister came and told me i was going to be all right oh my god yeah
0: how beautiful
2: yeah but that you know after that we looked like Night of the Living Dead outside walking around, you know, like, uh, 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 everybody's like all skinned. And, but that, I mean, that's what happened. We came over a hill and we couldn't stop.
0: I, I know, you know, and I, and I know you left the band then for a bunch of reasons, but how much did the bus and how did the bus accident lead to the decision to leave the band? Uh,
2: I, well, up until that point, you know, the band had took off. And up, up to that point, it, it had just taken off like a rocket. And I, I didn't, I said before, I didn't really have any goals. I i just got to feeling like, okay, here I am. I'm in my twenties and I've done all of this stuff that I never thought I would ever do. And the only thing I wanted to do when I moved to town was to be able to play well enough to be invited to come out and play gigs and it got, and that happened. So I was satisfied. And then BB came along and and just got swept up in it. I thought I probably had done more than I could ever dream of doing. And I thought probably it was a good time to go and get a a legitimate career while I still had the time uh, to learn how to do something well. That's not because of the bus crash. The bus crashes, it doesn't make you reconsider your life or anything like that? No, that was, it didn't make me reconsider my life. I had already been thinking about possibly doing something else because I was I was satisfied that, that that had been a dream that came true. But that was what capped it off is like, okay, well, I could have been a hurt a lot worse than this. And I think probably it's time to stop.
0: So you go to upstate New York and you you're working as a contractor, you're
2: working as a cottage caretaker, caretaker, working for an elderly couple that had some property in the Catskills. And um I worked worked at a ski lift driving a shuttle in the wintertime. Were you playing? I quit. Quit playing the instrument. I quit playing. Didn't didn't play much of anything at all. And um got moved to the Catskills and I, I couldn't really find anybody around to play much with. And so I just didn't play. Every time I'd get the hankering i wanted to play i'd get it out and i couldn't play or you know my my skills were were dropping off and you know so i played less and less and less, and and consequently but took up drinking way too much because i was miserable and uh i wasn't fit to be around really um there wasn't, there wasn't a lot lot of things to do. And I didn't know many people way up there. It's a beautiful part of the country. And it was a shame that I was, I was loaded for most of it. But, you know, and I, but that, that showed me that playing music was a big part of who I had become, and that I was not going to be able to ignore it unless I wanted to not not be fit to be around. And so I started slowly getting back into it.
0: Man, oh, man, I, I, I can only imagine that, you know, when, you, when you're not playing music, you think you want to stop and you stop playing music and then you just lose that part of you, you know, and you, and you wouldn't you, you wouldn't be the first person to tell me that that thing gets replaced by drinking or some kind of bad act, you know, you wouldn't be the first. To do
2: it. Well, yeah. I, did, I did all of that. And, yeah. I, and, you know, and that that lasted on on through part of the, the time whenever I got back to Nashville. By the, by the time I, I moved back to town, there was nothing really much left to do, because there were there were uh, different youthful faces that had joined the crowd that were exceptional players and McCurry's being one. Mm -hmm. And and, you know, you know, Ronnie's always positive and, and, you know, energetic plays well, sings well, good looks, friendly, you know, and and I started playing with Greer quite a bit at that point in time, but there was wasn't much to do on mandolins because all, all the young bucks had moved to town and I was, you know, it's like, Oh God, I just threw it all away, but it, it was just a, it was just a turn it, turning in the road. Yeah.
0: I mean, look, look at what happens. I mean, then you get to, let's just skip ahead a little bit. Cause I love the Greer stuff, but I want to talk a little bit about Hartford and Hartford would have been, I mean, I knew the national, the national bluegrass band, but I knew you from the Hartford stuff that Hartford string band stuff, the, the work you guys did together. Like, cause Harford had done the liner notes for the, one of the early Nashville bluegrass band records, I think. So does he call you then when you go back to Nashville and say like, hey man, like you, you're playing the real thing. You're playing the heart, you're playing the heart, you know, wanna do it? Uh,
2: he had been around some at jam sessions and what have you.
0: I heard a story that he told you like, you gotta be solo. You got to be solo. The only way to do this is to do solo, and then he invited you to be in his, in his band.
2: Yeah, I, I I went up. There was a thing going on in around Knoxville in a town called Norris, where it's uh, sort of homecoming days. There was a guy uh, up there that had a, a collection. I can't I can't remember his name now. Anyway, he was he collected a bunch of Appalachian like tools and and all, all kinds of stuff, cabins. All and and they had Tennessee homecoming days. John would play up there every year. And I I went up there to sort to hang out and have something to do and, and met John and we started playing some a little bit. And uh, it seemed like that went on for a couple of different years. And he he did. He told me every time we were sitting down and play how much he enjoyed being a solo act. And uh, I guess about a month after after the second year of that, he asked me to join join him and, and start going on the road and i thought well I, what about all this solo solo thing that you were talking to me about but so we did that and then a, there was a bass player involved several several different ones and uh occasionally bob carlin would come on and play in banjo and and uh then chris sharp was in the mix and and you know and on and on and on
0: Man, there's so much space. Like, I had one of my favorite recordings from that. You guys did that Live at Mountain stage record, and you guys do Bring Your Clothes On Home and Love Me One More Time. John's playing fiddle. Who's playing bass on that? Who would have been that been?
2: Jerry McCurry.
0: Yeah. Jerry, and you're playing mandolin. There's no guitar. No. It's, and you have all this room and you're playing. Mm-hmm. You're playing beautifully on that. That's that's a great recording.
2: Working with, well, a lot, a lot of people that went on and on and on about that thing a long time before I ever heard it. Uh, I couldn't tell you right now what's even on it, except that I know it's, it's a gig. I remember doing the gig. Playing with Greer was, you know, a big ingredient. And, and that too, trying to figure out how to, how to, what to do with a mandolin when a virtuoso guitar player is playing, and, and I'm, I'm left to be the guy playing rhythm for him. Yeah. And you can't just go, chop, 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 chop. No, it's, it's, I, I did that about once and I thought, well, there's no support here, none. So what can I do with this little sissy guitar? You know, and, and Hartford was, was so into Ed Haley. Whose wife Ella played Madeleine with him. Uh, I just started going bang, banging, lang, 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 and trying to, you know, at first doing something, I felt like it was something that I had tried to not do the entire time I was learning how to play. And then this was what John wanted: was this old-time stuff. And so you know i was i got into that more and more and more and then started meeting some of the old time the legit old time players the people that were really in love with this music and realizing that i didn't know what the hell i was talking about and that the the uh the skill level for playing a, a lot of the a lot of the old time stuff was way up there and that there were some magnificent technicians that were doing it and You know, I was way behind. So, you know, that was that was at the point where I started started hanging with Molesky and and Rafe Stefanini and and uh, and all all of those folks. Carlin, quite a bit.
0: Yeah. But that's getting to the heart of the first music you started playing. I mean, that's going back, right? Like that's going Mm -hmm. back to those early days you were telling
2: me. It was. And then all of a sudden, Armored Smith showed back up. (laughs) That's how I started. Oh, I remember hearing about these guys from the guys I was working with when I was 15. Yeah, but it's that heart of the music.
0: I mean, that's how I started. I mean, when I started playing Irish music and I started playing old-time music and I was already a wild a bluegrass-obsessed guy, you know, even though I was playing Irish music. But there's going back to what you were saying at the beginning about finding the heart and the rawness and the depth of this music, you know, you you find that in that music and, you know, yeah. you hear that, you
2: know? And as it's it's extremely difficult to figure out what to do with the mandolin if you're not one of the Lee county revelers. (laughs) You don't know what, what am I supposed to be doing? You know? So I I took a bunch of ingredients and, and made, made something up just to try to fit, fill space and be a legitimate backup guy for all this stuff. And, that, you know, John John said that he didn't care what we did as long as we played something that pertained to what's a being played. I mean, that's the way he said it. He said, you know, be musical, be creative, do whatever you want. Just make sure that it pertains to what I'm playing. Wow.
0: I got, I got so many, I mean, I want to be conscious of your time and you've been really generous already. I has got a couple more things I'm, I'm dying to know. One is that like, I find, so Harford, I find really, really interesting, like, you know, really formative artist for me, especially I wore a bowler cap to my grade 12 graduation because mm. of him. You know, I, I'm from a sort of a nautical world, you know, and I was like, Oh, maybe I'll <laughs> make Are there river boats here? And they were like, no, this is the Atlantic ocean, Tom. There's no riverboat. <laughs> but I, Here's what I'm curious about, and I don't know if you'll have an answer, but like when he has that success with Gentle on My Mind in the early days, right? He doesn't really have to worry about a lot after that.
3: And it's knowing I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds and the ink stains that are dried upon some line That keeps you in the back roads by the rivers of my memory it keeps you ever gentle on my mind. It's not clinging to the
0: rocks and ivy planted on Like, he, just financially, he, he used to refer to it as mailbox money. He had mailbox money coming in. And in those days, the, the the success of those songs, if you wrote a Wichita lineman or you wrote a gentle on my mind, you know, it was amazing. Like, how much did that lead to, like, who he became as an artist? Like, how much did that, when you were torn with him, like, his fearlessness his idiosyncrasies you know what he was able to do as an artist which was outside pretty much everything else like where did that come from in him did it come from the freedom he was afforded through gentle of my mind or was it kind of there anyway
2: that was that was part of it he he uh did all kinds of stuff he did whatever came to mind he told me at one point that he used to write seven or eight songs a day when he was doing the 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 radio john thing and it's just, you know, he was that, that sort of a, a, an obsessed personality. Everything he did, he his one of his mottos was, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. So, you know, that's that's who he was. He, he earned every inch of it. I mean, he was just, and he, he called himself a frustrated librarian, not, not not nearly as much as a musician. He looked upon himself as a guy that probably would be better suited to work. In the library and doing filing and all that kinds of stuff, but it, 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 he he did say that he wouldn't let anybody mess with "Gentle on My Mind." He, he called it "Gentle." He said, "That's my money song," and he said, "You don't mess with that because that that made it possible for me to do all the rest of this stuff."
3: I did my cup of soup back from the gurgling, crackling cauldron in some train yard my beard roughing in coal pile and a dirty hat pulled low across my face (coughs) (coughs) through cupped hands round a tin can I pretend to hold you to my breast and find that you're waving from the back roads by the rivers of my memory for hours it is gentle on my mind
2: And so he was very much aware that that's that's what put him in a place where he that he just followed what was occurring to him I think uh, he yeah. he worked and worked and worked at I um, you know in a real interesting process you know i've i it took me a long time to figure out how fearless he had been and and how courageous he was to do what he had been doing which which was just go out there and be himself and just the whole process of working through stuff. He would, he would work through them and, and get something together. He thought how he wanted it, and he'd put it out in front of the audience. And if it was going good, then it would stay on the, on the list. If not, he would rework it and see and, and, and mess around with it and see how it was coming across. And, and you know, arrangements a lot of the times just fall by the wayside. If it wasn't working at that point, he'd just do something else. And he was
0: doing all this while he was sick
2: yeah there there got to be a point where uh well i mean before he was sick too but uh it got to be a point where if he sat still for any length of time he'd doze off yeah and once there was time to play music you could hardly keep up with him i mean i I will remember distinctly a night standing on stage with him where he was he was playing and, and the thought went through my mind my god this guy as old as my daddy and I it's all I can do just to stay on, stay on top of it and keep up
0: yeah I um I found out about him through those down from the mountain concerts you guys did mm-hmm. those were um I mean just everything you're talking about I mean if you just look at the trajectory here of like you know you're starting at a meridian and then you know the meeting Monroe and then the national Nash- the Nashville bluegrass band stuff takes off and it blows up and then you know the 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 bus crashed. You you you, have to, you fall in some hard times, and then you come back, and and you feel a little bit left out, and then you go on to be the mandolin player on the biggest recording in the history of the music. Like the, the you be, you become the one of the one of the mandolins, one of the architects of the of the of thing, which becomes the biggest thing.
2: i the 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 Cohen brothers hired John to come in and do some fiddle tunes because they were fans of his i mean john- john just went with with whatever was you know i i don't know that i remember him talking about uh following because it was popular and and making making that his own he John just did john and whatever kind of idea. I mean, some of the stuff that we did was wacky to a lot of people. And but John had a lot of fans, you know, he back whenever John was was doing a lot of songs about smoking pot, he you know, he called them his lifestyle reinforcement songs. I mean, he had a lot of fans that just used to scream what granny won't you smoke some and and he'd say uh, that he that he he would do that later or. But, you know, he got into that Ed Haley thing and he, he basically did what he called buying back the territory.
3: One more thing that I never will know Lost in the speed of the old long low
1: <laughs>
3: And a little on down I never can catch that certain song At Katnissburg on the courthouse
1: lawn
2: He would do always do gentle on my mind because that's what everybody do him for but then he he would go out and he might do he'd say i'll do a song that they like and then i'll do another one that i'm i'm pretty sure they like and then i'll do one for me and then i'll do for one for them and uh, you know that we both like and then maybe i'll do two or three more for them and then i'll do a couple for us and you know he had he was just like all this was running in his mind while while he was doing it He, he didn't show up with a set list the set list was in his mind and if something would would occur, he might decide all of a sudden he's he's gonna do, okay, there's people here that want to hear tall buildings. So he'd pick up the guitar, he'd borrow Chris's guitar, and he'd he'd do that pretty much, and we'd just kind of noodle around in the background. Send
3: me to work in tall buildings. So it's goodbye, goodbye to it's the sunshine. sunshine. Goodbye, goodbye to the dew Goodbye the flowers and goodbye to you. I'm off to the subway. I must not be late. I'm going to work in tall buildings.
2: Uh, the whole abandoned experience with him was about paying attention and listening to what everybody was doing because you didn't never know he he'd put some microphone if they didn't have mics down low he'd put about three or four microphones in a group what he called a bouquet like that and he'd be up playing and he'd say chris play one and here we go it's like oh 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 really my turn so you have to pay attention i mean that it was good for that because you have to be on the ball all the time They wasn't there wasn't a it, it it may have come across as being something that that looked kind of informal but there it was anything but because if you weren't watching him you'd be sorry yeah <laughs> <laughs> he'd catch you off guard and then he'd make you standing there with your britches down yeah.
0: but man oh man that old brother thing took off like that took off
2: yeah nobody had any idea including the record companies that that was going to happen not well whenever it, it all got done uh we went in to just to do fiddle tunes and we ended up cutting about 35 or 36 of them. And uh, the Coen's liked what John was doing. So they just they just kept us on. And, you know, and then that whole thing started and it just. Well, it just got to be a a whirlwind, you know, at some some time, Emmylou would come in and do some with her and and uh, Gillian and, and would would come on and do some stuff. And and then Tominsky's over here, Cox family's back there, and Ralph's hanging back there, going, ah! <coughs> looking at his watch and doing all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was, it was like, well, go over here and play with Norman on this one, and then we'll, and we'll do, uh, okay, then we'll let's go over here and we'll, let's do uh, You Are My Sunshine.
1: You are my sunshine.
2: And there's like hours and hours and hours of that music still in the can. I, I once in a while, I, I do about one or two projects for T Bone every year since. Yeah. And sometimes he'll say, Well, we've just remixed such and such off of that soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, he's still messing with that.
0: Thing. Yeah, I had a. Uh, he he came on my show not that long ago, and we had a nice talk about that. And he let me know that because he knows how transformative that was for me. Like, if it wasn't for a brother, I wouldn't
2: have found out about my own province's music. I saw I, I saw a lot of new pairs of overalls that year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, if it wasn't for a brother, I wouldn't have learned about my own music. I wouldn't have learned about the music from my hometown.
2: Like, I know you know. I know but it but it was it was all old music yeah it was except for the you know pete uh wrote some of those songs on that soundtrack i mean those but he had written those a while back most of that stuff that we all played was music that our grandparents knew yeah i mean and that's you know that's a testament to the strength of it and the guy at the record label whenever he came out and handed out all the gold records he said Nobody had any idea that this music was still popular. He said, we, we couldn't, we couldn't have seen this coming for anything. I think it tells you something, man,
0: as someone who thinks a lot about flash versus heart, and, but on my mind, like, I think when you play heartfelt music, no matter when it's from, it can reach people on, you know, on a massive level.
2: That, that was, that was the common consensus was is that people were looking for something real and there it was.
0: Yeah. Your break on um, the opening of "I'll Fly
2: Away" on that is really nice too, man. I play that a lot. Oh, geez, I, they wrote it out wrong in the songbook. <laughs> Somebody apparently, whoever wrote the tab for it, didn't realize that mandolins have chords on them. So <laughs> he was going like going up and down the fingerboard this way. Right. <laughs> but I have I have had more comments, not not necessarily compliments, but comments on that than anything I've ever done. The opening, the kickoff to I'll Fly Away? Yeah.
0: Why? I don't know. It's easy, I tell you, it could be because it's easy to figure out and you sound really impressive when you figure it out like P- you know? T-Bone
2: said just play it simple and yeah. and and just play it pl-. they were listening to uh, the Cackle Sisters I think it was what it yeah. was and it was just me and Chris playing he said we'll just play it real simple play it straightforward." and and you know we had we did it over and over and over until the groove got just right can
0: you pick but, a little bit of it I could get the mandolin there can you just pick a little bit of it
2: do you yeah, mind I mean, do you
0: mind yeah. no
2: All Mudro. <laughs> That's so good, man. Thank you for That's, doing that. It's just, you know, I I hadn't played madly today so far, <laughs> so I hope that was
0: all right. And that, and that leads me to this. I mean, if you think about it, and, and I, I want to be cautious of time here, maybe close things off like this. I mean, that leads me back to this this new Monroe record. I mean, this record of, you know, Rare and Fine, these, um, it's, it's hard to think about what to call it, like uh, unreleased, unheard, sometimes unfinished music of Bill Monroe. So I got a couple of questions on that. One off is, what keeps you coming back to Bill Monroe's mandolin playing? What keeps you coming back to it?
2: well at at this point in time um it's something that's real familiar to me and it's a comfort um and not so much an obsession but just a i've transcribed about several three or four hundred of his uh recorded works and it's it's a vocabulary that i'm familiar with with all of its quirks you know we're talking about it being unapologetic it's it's the honesty in it that i lean on and the language is is flexible there's a lot of things that you can do to it and mark himbrey said one time when i was agonizing about something he said just play the language because it works everywhere it does and it fits because it's something that that is familiar to me and and something that I feel like I understand whether I can always pull it off or not uh, it's it's a familiar comfortable place to be and and that's that's what draws me into it plus it it's just the the kind of notes that he played and and what he was striving he was striving to, you know in his own way to be a fiddle player with an instrument that had frets on it it keeps revealing itself to me in different ways and and that that excites me you know more than it used to when i was trying to figure out what a lot of it was about i've every time i listen sit down and listen to it i hear something a little bit different that escaped me the first time so it's not as if or the first thousand times so it's not something that i i feel like i've i'm rediscovering a lot of it It keeps coming around as being new. This was somebody who in the early days of bluegrass music
0: didn't like that. The Stanleys existed because they sounded like him, you know, that he didn't like that. There were other bluegrass bands at all or bluegrass style bands.
2: Yeah, Flat and Scruggs were, you know, the ones that were really making the strides and they were the most popular. And uh, I think I think was Bill was real jealous of him. But in the beginning, you know, what they started together was the thing. That really took off
0: what did he think about a young fellow like you playing his style like what did he what did you know, trying to learn it
2: he didn't tell me much of anything at first and I' and i' I felt I felt uh I wanted for him to say yeah you're trying to play my style and and to show me some stuff and I and I in my insecure way I just closed myself off from him and and decided that I was just going to fight, figure it out my, my own way and whether he wanted to tell me or not. But after I got to the point where I had learned more, of at, at one point he just thought, well, okay, I guess I can have a conversation with this guy now that he's picked up some more of it. So you understand what I'm talking about. Bill, Bill had a funny way of explaining what it is he was doing. And uh, it was always about reading in between the lines. He finally, came around, he was coming up to a, a, a mutual friend of ours house. and I was standing out on the porch, smoking a cigarette as I did back in those days. And, and Bill came walking up the driveway by himself. And uh, I just stuck my hand up and waved. And he said, seems like you'd come down here and shake a man's hand. And so I, I walked all the way across the yard and went over there and meet you know, met him and shook hands with him. And we were walking down the driveway and he said, uh, he said, it it seems like you're really really playing this music right now, and and uh, and I thought, wow, okay. He didn't say my music.
0: That must have meant so much to you, man.
2: It was like winning Wimbledon or something. You know, I just thought, okay, geez, I I just kind of walked along there with with my head exploding, trying to think. Well, oh God, now what am I gonna do? Well, you mean I've arrived? Is that I've got I've got a. Uh, an affirmation from the father, you know, <laughs> it's just like, okay, God, wow, Uh now what do I do? Were you guys still in touch when he passed? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I, I used to go out and work some, do some stuff around out there for him. I plowing plow his garden up every once in a while and doing little things. But I, you know, I didn't, I didn't do any postholds like some of those other boys did. Yeah, I would take him to town every once in a while. But you know, I, I, I was just exploring. Sort of a casual friendship. Once in a while, he'd he'd call and and say uh, he wanted to go to the station in Ralph Ralph or Pete Rowan or somebody was down there playing, and I'd just drive him to town. But but I was I was happy to do it. that I mean, if that's all, and and Julia and I are about the same age, if she. She would real, really pushed him to communicate with me, which, which I appreciated and, and appreciate to this day. What do you think he would think about this record you just put out of his, of his music? I think, I think he would love it because this is a bunch he would th- certainly approve that. I mean, I didn't try to do anything except make a fiddle record after the fashion that he might, would have, would have done it. Now this is, this is stuff that was just sort of un- informal tapes, a lot of it, and things that were just rambling around in his head that came out onto a cassette tape someplace and, and is floating around on the internet. Some of it, not even that much, just were off of radio tapes. But it's it's all his music. And, you know, there there's about another album's worth of it still around. But after that, I, I, there's not really much left
0: we're gonna uh, I'll probably play a little bit of Trail of Tears after this is over isn't that a pretty thing oh my god I mean Good such an evocative sad tragic name on on it too you know it's hard not to think it's just a powerful piece of music man
2: yeah and that California forest fire is a nice one other the the title of it, it was a little bit nonsensical but there's uh on the tape uh seemed like Tom Ewan gave me this tape that had it on it was just uh dressing room stuff he bill was noodling on some things and then it seemed like the longer he played it the more it, uh, it came apart and then there was a another piece that third part that that kind of came in and it sounded like it went with the rest of it and after that it disintegrated but there was enough of it there that i could i could tell that, what that statement was yeah and so it's like no don't let this get away <laughs> well i gotta tell
0: you man like just just hearing the whole story and and hearing kind of have it come around full circle and and um and just i've always been a great admirer of your playing and the the heart of your playing and the and the love i can feel in your playing and and there's trying to access something deeper than virtuosity and something deeper than just chops you know what i mean it's always meant an awful lot to me and thanks for making the thanks for making the time today i appreciate it
2: no it's it's fine i'm i'm just i'm still discovering it and just and just you know, I I love to do it probably more now than I ever have. Uh, it's 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 been such a huge part of my life. You know, what else am I going to do? I just it, it, it means a lot. It means the world to me I've, I've, now that I've got to be double sixes. It's a lot of things don't mean a whole lot to me that that used to because it was all just bullshit. But, you know, this is not this is real stuff. And that's that's what I'm clinging to now because that's, that's the important stuff to me.
0: Thanks for making the time, Mike.
2: You're absolutely welcome.
0: All right. Thank you so much to Mike. Uh, what a joy it was getting to talk to him, especially opening up about that uh, just everything that happened after that bus accident. And I wasn't prepared for that, but I was really grateful to Mike for being so so open there about about his life in the music. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Toy Heart is produced by Stephanie Coleman and me, Tom Power. Our executive producer is Amy wright Jacobs with help, as always, from the entire BGS team. Creative director Shelby Williamson, editor Chris Jacobs. Chris Jacobs is also one of the folks behind this podcast, managing editor Justin Hiltner, all of the writers and contributors that make BGS the best source for Roots Culture Redefined. Discover more at thebluegrasssituation.com. Our theme song Toy Heart by Bill Monroe, Big Mon, was performed by Chris Eldridge and Kristen Andreessen. Stay tuned for more new episodes coming up this season with the likes of Laurie Lewis, Jody Stecker, and Allison Krauss. If this is the first time you've ever heard us, you can hear full interviews with the likes of Jerry Douglas, Del McCurry, Allison Brown, and Bail Fleck wherever you got this podcast. And if you like the show, please share it with a friend who loves bluegrass music. Uh, stay tuned for so much more coming up on this season of Toy Heart. We'll see you soon. Later on.